0: neighbor and say I'm having a good year so far. Or maybe you're not. I don't know. Maybe you're not. Say I'm not. I'm not having a good year. Pray for me. Encourage me. All right, let's look at your lesson sheet. We're going to um today we are uh we're going to end what we started way back in September. I can't believe that we've been on this uh during this journey. And yet as I looked at this, you know, I could teaching on this. For the rest of the year, because it really is the message of the Bible. In fact, our missionary Sam Masters, when he preached last uh, week, had an aspect of ex- exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, was one of the points in his sermon, because it's just there, it's everywhere. And I really wanted to end this with this idea. Uh, we're g- addressing this this year. Sh- Something that we spent the latter part of last year, for this very reason, in the or what I want to remind you of, is this. That this goes on to this year, next year, year, to come until Jesus comes back. Missions is necessary. And God wants to use you in it. Now, we've looked at uh, this series has been about three questions in one is jesus the only way to salvation and i won't uh, read through those questions again but i hope that you have steered into your mind uh, what your convictions are part of this series was intended to clear away confusion do you have clear convictions regarding these questions do you have a confidence of how to answer these questions shake your head, no, yes, or kind of like, no, you're still confused, or I'm wondering. Have you been moved along? I hope you have. I hope you have. I know I have. Now, how you answer these three-in-one, uh, the three-in-one question directly impacts your your missional living. And we saw that inclusivism cuts the nerve cord of missional living. If you think there's other ways to be saved then Hearing the gospel and believing in Christ, you will not be near, near as motivated. In fact, I would venture to say you would eventually quit witnessing all along. Now, people who believe Jesus is the only way still don't witness. So it doesn't mean it's an automatic, but it means this we are without excuse. And there's an inconsistency. If we believe what we have been learning in this series and do not witness actively, Passionately, consistently, then there's an there is a a break between what we believe and how we're living. Now, we were looking at the arguments of inclusivists and see whether inclusivism actually increases the motivation for missions. The first question we asked was: Does inclusivism motivate us to speak boldly, take risks, face opposition, and endure hardship in fulfilling the Great Commission? And the answer is no. If people are getting saved without me having to risk anything in in witnessing, well, why would I risk anything in witnessing? And so the answer is no. God's sovereign election and special revelation to preach the gospel is what motivated Paul to endure persecution and boldly preach the gospel. And We looked at three ways in which Paul was motivated. The second question is, We saw was, does inclusivism renew our commitment to reach every individual with the gospel of Christ? And we saw there's a lot of inconsistencies there. And what we saw, we looked at the uh, double rainbow man for uh, just a little humor, but also for a very serious reality that people can look right into the face of God's glory in creation. And while they are overwhelmed by it, while they, in a sense, enter into worship uh, as he kept saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, and was just overwhelmed. And yet it's not worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not worship of the one true God. It didn't lead and doesn't lead to repentance and to a desire to seek the truth of the gospel. So that brings us to number three. And here's the question that we have today does inclusivism broaden our understanding of evangelism in such a way that it motivates missional living does inclusivism broaden our understanding of evangelism in such a way that it motivates missional living well think through this with me this is really the only way an inclusivist can argue for world missions in other words if people are out there getting saved without hearing the gospel, then what's your motivation for missions? You have to broaden the motivation for missions beyond sharing the gospel. You have to make, there has to be some bigger reason for the Schmitz to go to Africa than simply sharing the gospel because many people are getting saved without hearing the gospel. So maybe they should just go and create an egg company and, and just let it settle for that. You know, that's missions. I created an aid company, helped the economy, and further that. Is that what they're talking about? Well, it just doesn't make sense. Here's what they claim. They claim that our motivation as exclusivists, our motivation for evangelism and missions must be greater than just escaping hell. And they're right if untold billions are already saved before we get there. See, they see us as simply saying, oh, the only reason to have missions is to get people out of hell. Well, since people in their thinking are already getting out of hell, we have too narrow a view of missions, and that's why we think inclusivism hinders missions, because we just don't have a big enough picture. Well, let's let's think about this. What should we be burdened to tell people who have never heard but are already saved? Because that's what an inclusivist is going to do. An inclusivist is going to be a missionary in order to tell people something They have never heard, and yet they are already saved. Are you with me? That's what missions becomes. So what would they be telling them? Well, here's, here's, and this is coming from people that hold this position. Number one, tell them who has already saved them. A part of what an inclusivist would do is say, hey, by the way, actually, the first thing you would tell them is that they are saved, because most of them don't even know that. So, hey, by the way, you're saved, but you don't know it. And the person who saved you, you don't know, is Jesus Christ, so let me introduce you to him. All right? Now, some of you are like going, that just doesn't make sense. Exactly, Sherry. It doesn't make sense. That's how you should be looking. This is this is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous in light of the teaching of Scripture. You would tell people you are part of the people, God, or you're saved and you're not a part of the people, God, and you need to become a part of the people, God. Now, that just doesn't even make sense at all in light of Scripture. People that are saved, but not part of the people of God. But I'm here to tell you that that you are saved, but you didn't really know it. You didn't know who saved. And by the way, you're a part of the people of God that you don't really even know about. Number three, you have or need to enter into a covenant relationship with God through Christ. Now think about this. You're saved apart from the new covenant. A new covenant, it just doesn't make sense. And here's number four. You need to be baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit to be part of the body of Christ. Now, can you imagine a scenario where someone's born again in this age, the church age, they're born again, they don't really know it, they don't really, have never heard of Christ, and now they need to hear about Christ just so they can be suddenly baptized with the Holy Spirit and uh, become a part of the body of christ now what the, what does all this do here 's what it does. What kind of salvation do you have if you don't know christ you 're not a part of the church and you don 't have the holy spirit what that just deepens the new birth? Oh, we can say they're saved, but what kind of salvation is that it's small it's minuscule it 's nothing like what is described in the New Testament. Also, this cheapens Jesus Christ. Oh, uh, you're saved. You have all that glorious relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. You're eternally secure. Oh, uh, and oh, by the way, we're here to tell you about Jesus. Holy disconnects Christ from, the sa- from his saving work. It cheapens the salvation that is seen in the scripture. And it cheapens to So does inclusivism broaden our understanding of evangelism in such a way that it motivates missional living? I would say no. I would say no. And here's why. Escape from eternal death is part of our motivation for missional living. But to escape eternal life is also to enjoy eternal life. Here's the thing. They want to say that we as inclusivists, all we care about is escaping hell. And let me say this. That, yes, there is times when there have been people, and maybe you have been in this camp, all I want to do is get this person saved. All I want to do is see them not go to hell. And as soon as they make that decision, we wash our hands of it, we feel relieved, and we move on to the next person. Do we sometimes think that way? And yet the reality is this. Escaping hell is linked to enjoying the benefits of hell. Uh, escaping separation from God. Means I get to enjoy a relationship with God, and so we don't separate these two things. Now, let's turn our Bibles to Acts ten. We've talked about Cornelius many a time, and have failed to ever really examine this story. And yet, Cornelius—it's—it's—it's it's, it's ironic that the story of Cornelius is used by inclusivists and they feel like this proves their point when in fact the story of Cornelius shows that even people who are, well, at least in the time of Acts, the people who feared God and were religious were still unsaved because Christ had been born died rose we're in a new discipline we're in a and in this new age even the most religious the most god-fearing of people still need to hear the gospel christ place their faith in him be baptized with the holy spirit and be born again let's see this cornelius is their poster boy and but the Bible clearly shows that he is unsaved in need of hearing the gospel. Now notice in your notes what it says. Inclusivists focus on the good works of Cornelius and God's communication with him through a vision to say, there, see, this guy is saved. He doesn't know Christ. He still needs someone to come. Peter still needs to preach the gospel to him, yet he's saved. Look at all that the Bible says. So let's look at Acts chapter 10. And let's look at verses 1 through 4. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment. So we have a uh, a Gentile individual, not a Jew, a Gentile. Number two, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people. Now, And prayed to God always. What we have here is not only a Gentile, but a God fearer. And a God-fearer was someone who was convinced of the of the uh the biblical teaching of Judaism, yet they didn't want to be circumcised. They didn't want to become a Jew, but they believed in what the Jews taught and believed in the God of the Jews. But they're not ready to make that commitment to circumcision. And so notice it emphasizes that he feared God. With all of his household, he gave alms generously to the people. The people would have been the Jewish people. So here's a Roman guy supporting God's people financially. And the kicker is he prayed to God always. And so they focus on that and say, wow, look at these good works. Now notice what happens. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God which, by the way, angel means simply messenger, a messenger of God, an angelic messenger. And notice, God is initiating and sending a messenger, a messenger of God coming in, saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. And here we have a man that fears God, who prays and whose prayers are being answered by God. Now, if you just took that and that's all you knew, you could really play that up and say, "Here's an individual who's saved." I mean, here's a guy. He doesn't. He may not understand everything. He may not have been as committed, uh, committed enough to become a Jew. But here's a guy who's saved. So they play that up. Well, here's what the messenger says, though. Now, send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon. A tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. All right, so something is lacking. Something God knows what is lacking. Cornelius does not. God takes the initiative to send an angelic messenger, but get this couldn't that angelic messenger have told Cornelius what Peter was going to come and tell him? Yes or no? I mean, couldn't he, why does God have to use a human messenger? Well, first of all, he doesn't. He has chosen in his sovereign plan of redemption, he has chosen to use the likes of you and I. And as we're gonna, as you would see in this story, we won't take time to work all the way through it, Peter is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Okay? While Cornelius is praying, and yes, he's responding to God's grace. He's responding to God's people. And by the way, he isn't responding to the stars. He's responding to the scriptures that are, in, that are being communicated and possessed by the people of God, the Jews, in which he is, has some sort of connection with. A connection enough that he prays to their God, and a connection enough that he gives offerings to their people. So even where the the point that he's gotten to at this point in the story has not come through general revelation, we have good basis to believe. It it isn't explicit, but we have good basis to believe that it has come through special revelation through God's people. But what strikes me in the story, as it does about the Christmas story that we just went through, is that angelic messengers are going throughout the universe Proclaiming good news, but they're always proclaiming, go and see it from a human messenger, or in the time of Christ, literally go and see the human baby, uh, Jesus Christ. So it's very interesting. Now, when the uh, vision comes to Peter, while this is going on, there's a vision coming to Peter, and God's telling Peter, go to the house of a Gentile and preach the gospel. And Peter says, I don't want to do that. That would be. Make me unclean. And God says, look, what's, what's clean and what's unclean is for me to decide, not for you. You need to just obey me. Go. And so after seeing the vision, saw it three times, he finally gets the picture. There's a whole lesson right there in us about reluctant messengers. God says, go. We're no different. The Great Commission has been given to us. God says, go. And what do we say? Oh, no, God, I, I understand better how this plan should work. You know, and here's what inclusives say, Lord, we understand better how this works. These people are already saved. They don't need to hear from me. Well, the vision comes to to Peter as well. Now, here's come down to verse 22. The vision comes to Peter. God speaks to Peter in a vision and says, you need to go and share a message with a man who I already told to get ready to hear a message from you. And he's already sent messengers to you to bring you to him. And here's what these messengers say. Verse 22, and they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God, has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. So there again, it emphasizes this man has a reputation and a relationship a God-fearing relationship with God's people, which means he's been exposed to the gospel through the Old Testament, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house. And then, I mean, I would underline this. I would star this. And to hear words from you. To hear words from you. Now, this is the point that we've been driving at what about those who have never heard what is their need their need is to hear words from us from the schmitz from our missionaries our missionary partners from you and i they need to hear words from you now notice uh, in the next point in your uh, notes, it says the inclusivists try to explain away Acts 10, 33 through 44, and Acts 11, 12 through 18. Because what happens? Well, when these two get together, Peter finally uh, uh, kind of gets the point, and he travels and he comes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius, by this time, has gathered all his friends and family, and wouldn't uh, every pastor and evangelist and every Uh, a God-fearing Christian would love to have this, uh, uh, just a house full of people ready to hear the gospel. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to see that? And yet God can work in that way. He really does, and he can. Now notice what happens. In verses 33 through 44, he begins to preach the gospel. Look at verse 33. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God, and here it's repeated, to hear all the things commended by you and then i love this then peter opened his mouth then peter opened his mouth and said in truth i perceive that god shows no partiality but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him now here's what the inclusivists do with that verse 35 they say see peter shows up And he opens his mouth, but what he does, he doesn't open his mouth to preach the gospel to save them. He opens his mouth because his eyes have been opened and he sees, look, God saves people in every nation if if they would just fear him. Every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Does that sound like the words of saving grace? It does. God accepts you. He saves you. But the reality is that word accepts is never used in relation to salvation. It's never used in that way. All he's saying is, I see now that any person from any nation, wherever they are, is welcomed by God to hear the gospel. It's a divine welcome. It's not God's divine will to save whoever is just religious. Are you with me? What he's saying is, I've, I see now that it's my role as a believer to preach the gospel anywhere and to as many as who will hear. And then he proceeds to preach the gospel. Now, he goes down through and he preaches it. And he says, uh, verse 42, we'll drop down. Uh, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify It is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So there he is. He's preaching bad news as well as good news. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. He's taken the Old Testament. Remember our lesson on the gospel in the Old Testament? He's taken the Old Testament. He's saying, look, all the Old Testament points to Christ. Whoever believes in him will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. Verse 44, while Peter is still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. In other words, those who had come with him, the Jewish people who had come with him were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? How did they receive the Holy Spirit? Through the preaching of the gospel and putting their faith in Christ. They received the Holy Spirit. It came all at once. And ever since Cornelius, that's the way it's supposed to be in the rest of the church age. No one's out there who has never heard of Christ. No one is already saved already filled with the Holy Spirit and already going to heaven without having ever heard the gospel or placed their faith in Christ. It didn't happen for Cornelius and it's not happening for anyone else. He commanded them to be baptized, who in the name of the Lord and they asked him to stay a few days. But get this, when you go to uh, uh, Acts 11, let's look at Acts 11, 12 through 18. Notice what happens here. Peter is retelling the story to the brethren who were in Judea because the Jews, Jewish believers can't believe this happened. And notice, then the, it, it says in verse 12, uh, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompany me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Now notice verse 14 who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be. You tell me how you can read this story and come out of this, that Peter was already saved, didn't need to hear the God. It says right there, by which you will be saved. Now, let me say this. Was Peter saved, I mean, was Cornelius already saved in the Old Testament? I think he was. Now, some would argue, some good scholars, some good Bible would argue that he wasn't. I think he was in the Old Testament sense. But the point is, he's no longer living in the Old Testament age. He's living in what age? The New Testament age. And God is trying to drive a point home that in this New Testament age where Christ has lived, died, rose, and reigns, and it's only him through which we are saved, what must we do? We must, must preach the gospel to those who have not heard of him because Cornelius had never heard of Christ. He had never been baptized with the Holy Spirit the moment he believed. All that had to take place, and God chose to do it through a messenger. A weak messenger, an imperfect messenger, perhaps even a fearful messenger? Hey, could it be a messenger just like you and I are right now? Yeah, could it humble us that God would use the likes of us to preach? Good. But what the devil gets us to do is to think God would never use the likes of us. God doesn't want to use me. God couldn't use me. look at me i'm fearful I'm, I'm hesitant. i'm well yeah, I'm those things too. but when I'm obedient, like Peter became obedient, then God does great things, and he will save through the preaching of the gospel. So the answer is this: that uh, that we need to get out and preach the gospel. That brings us to number four: does inclusivism exalt love? as the primary motivation for missional living in a way that exclusivism doesn't. Here's what the inclusivists want to say. You exclusivists out there don't really love people. You're just into hell and and kind of scaring people into heaven. We, on the other hand, truly love people, and we don't want anybody to to go to hell. And so our motivation of love is greater. Well, we need to remember that inclusivism... Is all about that first axi- axiom of love. Remember, their number one driving point is that God is a God of what? God is a God of love, and that drives everything. But Scripture shows He's a God of love and He's a God of holiness. And um, and I want you to think through this. Here, here, here's and this is becoming more popular, not just by people that are mistaken in inclusive beliefs but even among Bible-believing Christians, it's increasingly becoming popular to downplay the motivation of not wanting people to go to hell. That somehow loving you and wanting you to experience God's love is somehow a higher motivation than not wanting you to suffer eternally in hell. Now, Granted, both should be driven by love, right? I mean, I, I mean, we both should be driven by love. But, but wanting people not to go to hell is a very loving thing. That's what I'm trying to say. It's very loving to not want you to go to hell. I am somehow not shallow in my love because I preach hell. In fact, to preach hell correctly, to preach hell with the heart of God, you must have a heart of love. Otherwise, it becomes a perverse doctrine of ah, you're going, I'm not. And if you were as special and sharp as me, you'd get on board with Christianity like I have, as if I had anything to do with getting on board with you. See, the reality is, I was just as blind, hard, sinful, serving of God's wrath as you. But God in his grace sent a messenger to share God's grace, God's love, and yes, God's judgment with me and gave me a message of condemnation coupled with compassion, that if I would recognize my sin and admit my sinfulness and fall at the feet of the mercy of my Savior Jesus Christ, that I might be saved from hell into a glorious relationship with a God of love and holiness. Now, I think Paul would be surprised to hear that his motivation... To be a minister of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5 is somehow less than loving in its motivation. Turn to your Bible, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's look at what the motivation was of some of the greatest uh, messengers of the gospel. And I think Paul is it. The greatest missionary in the Bible. The greatest missionary uh, really in church history. Here's what motivated him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. This is right before he says, I'm a minister of reconciliation with a message of reconciliation, and I'm motivated to share it. Here's my motivation. Verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. Here's our ultimate motivation. We want to please God. God has told us to. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we do what? We persuade men. Here he's saying is, look, I as a Christian am going to have to give an account before Jesus and that makes me sober and serious. Now, when I think about me facing Jesus as a believer, then I think of people facing Jesus without His blood covering them sins, their sins. It motivates me. I don't think he's hell judgment shallow and not motivating. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. I don't think Jesus is lacking in hell, and he spoke of hell more than anyone else. Do some people reduce evangelism to getting a free fire insurance policy? Sure they do, but that doesn't make the fire any less real. Are you with me? Because people reduce Christianity to fire insurance doesn't mean the fire isn't real or that we shouldn't be talking about it. Listen to this. The risk, here's an illustration. The risk I'm willing to take to save someone from execution, they're on death row. The risk I'm willing to take to save someone from execution is not increased by telling me he's no longer on death row. Okay, I got a friend that's on death row. They're facing execution. I'm trying to call the governor. I want to stay of execution. I want to do everything. And then someone says, oh, by the way, they're not in death row anymore. And what are you going to do? Okay, that takes the burden off. But here's the reality. But how much would you risk to sell someone on death row that he can not only get off death row, but also be released from jail to enjoy life as an innocent law-abiding citizen? Not just escape execution, but actually be recognized as a law-abiding citizen who has not broken the law. That would motivate me. That's the message of the gospel. Listen, the Bible says we're all on death row and the wrath of God abides on us. We need more than a stay of execution. We need to be declared perfect, righteous, and as good as God. To... That's... So, does inclusivism exalt love as the primary motivation uh, for missional living in a way that exclusivism does not? No, no. There are many different motivations for evangelism and missions that should all flow out of love, for God and for others, to the point of sacrificing ourselves to show forth the glory of Christ. So let me give you, and these are just, I just want to go through these, five motivations. Five motivations. And you can look up the scripture, but have you ever thought, what should be motivating me? What be motivating me to share? Maybe the reason... Maybe the reason we're not as motivated as we ought to be is that we don't understand the motivation. And you see, the heart of this series comes down to these five. The inclusivist says, the problem with you guys is your only motivation, the fear of hell and helping people escape hell. We are superior because our motivation is love. And we want to see as many people get into heaven as possible. Well, I want to give you five biblical motivations for missional living. And this is why I wanted to do this or end the series in this year and, and, and not just leave it behind. Because I hope you'll take these and you'll look up these scriptures and you'll think through and you'll own these motivations for the rest of your life. But let's just focus. 2011. number one delight the fur and I, and these are in order in the sense that at least number one ought to be delight in spreading the glory of God person I think the saddest thing about thinking that people can be saved apart from hearing about Christ is that it diminishes the glory of our glorious day. it diminishes the work person of jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says in Second Corinthians four thirteen through fifteen. He says this And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. Wow, there's a whole lesson there. Those who believe are those who speak. I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sake. Listen, that the grace having spread through many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. We ought to want to share the gospel so that people get saved and there's more people spreading the glory of God. Number two, desire. Desire for the good of others, both the escape of eternal death and the enjoyment of eternal life in Jesus Christ. You could say, number one, delight is love, and you could say, number two, desire is love. The point is, the glory of God and the good of others are the prime motivations for witnessing. And listen, when we don't witness, we diminish His glory, we do not do good for those around us. Paul said, I'm a debtor to both great Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm a debtor. It's my desire to do good. Number three, dread. Dread of facing the judgment of Christ without persuading as many people as possible to place their faith in Jesus. Dread in God holding me accountable for being silent, but dread that others will be accountable to God without ever hearing. They will be sent to a Christless. Number three, or number four, is duty. Duty. Duty to obey the will of the Father and the Lordship of Christ who has given us the great commission. Here's what Paul said. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do it willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Paul doesn't even entertain the possibility of not preaching. He just entertains the possibility of, I could do it willingly, in which I will get eternal reward at the judgment seat, or I do it unwillingly. But there's not, see, (laughs) that blows me away. The guy just doesn't see an option of being silent. It's my duty as a believer. Now, what's sad is often we have so hammered duty that we forgot the delight and the desire aspect of witnessing. But notice we're looking at five motivations. The fifth motivation is determination to redeem the time before it's too late. People are filled with delight for God, desire for the good of others, dread of the judgment seat of Christ, and who understand their duty before God will be determined to redeem the time before it's too late. God has appointed that each person dies once, and after this, they face judgment. Let me end with this illustration by Lytton Ford. Leighton Ford was a brother-in-law to Billy Graham. I speak of him in the past tense. He, he, I think he's still alive. Um, in fact, maybe he's not. I don't know. But anyway, he's an evangelist. Here's what he said, and this is a great quote. The great quote to end the series on. The belief that mankind is lost is far from the only motive for evangelism and mission. There are 101 positive reasons for winning people to Christ. Yet there is only one great negative, that man should not perish. Take away that great negative and you will cut the nerve cord of concern. There's 101 positive. There's one great negative one. And when you eliminate that one great negative one, then you have eliminated all the motivation to share the 101 positive. One uh, believer prayed this, Oh God, may we never get used to hearing the thud of Christ's feet on the road Australian believer made uh, this statement at the end of the 1974 Luzon uh, Congress on evangelism. When I realized that men without God were lost now and would be lost forever, even nice folks, even my family and friends, I vowed that I would burn out one life in telling others the fabulous good news Jesus has brought. That's the burden of us. burden that inclusivism eliminates from our hearts so number two exclusivism as taught in the bible strengthens it strengthens the nerve cord of missional living the bible clearly answers the question whether missions is necessary in romans 10 and we'll save that maybe for next year's missions uh, world outreach but here's what i want to say to you today how do you answer the question is Jesus the only way to God? And look at, it at the bottom of your notes. I would challenge you, if you haven't already done this over Christmas break, I would challenge you to do it this week, here at the beginning of 2011. Answer these questions. Number one, what is one way this series has had a lasting impact on your thinking about Jesus being the only way? What is one way? I know that's a scary question. That we even remember in, but it's a question we ought to ask at the end of the series that we go through. If you need a refresher, these are on the website glenwoodconnection.org. You can download the notes. You can download the messages. Number two: What is one way your feelings have changed towards those who have never heard? I hope this has increased your burden and feeling for the loss. Number three: What is one area of confusion that has been cleared up by this series? I would put that down in 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 print. I would put a verse by it, a m you know, a, a passage by it. And then number four, what is one conviction that has been strengthened or established? And I hope at least that one conviction is I need to share more twenty eleven. I need to be more bold, more burdened, I need to pray more. I need to be like Peter. I need to open my mouth and speak. And then number five, what is one step you will take in your witnessing to the loss and involvement in world missions as a result of the series? The series has been taught; it is yet to be applied. That's for us to 2011. I know my convictions have been deepened. Some confusion has increased because I have more questions in some ways than I have answers to going through this series but the answers that God has given in his word are clearer to me and I'm more committed to them than ever. I hope, I hope, I know it won't be all of you, but I hope there will be a core of you who will have a greater burden, greater conviction. The love of the lost, reach those who have been. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace, your abundant grace that reached out and initiated our salvation. Son, pay for our sin, rise from the dead, but also the initiated started. Someone coming, to, coming to people in the, Lord, let it, Father, let's don't be, by the false, other way. Lord, let us ask ourselves, have right doctrine, good, do we have right practice? Move us out and share the gospel, boldness, and a love, and a delight and a desire that we haven't had in the past. Jesus name, we give you all the glory.